Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Wiley Robinson, CEO and founder of Rumple, a blanket made for everywhere. While camping with his co-founder, Wiley realized the void and the versatility of indoor blankets. This inspired him to sew their first prototype, which became Rumple as we know it today. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Wiley Robinson of Rumple. Wiley, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I want to start out with your upbringing. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew up in San Francisco, California. Um, my childhood was really enjoyable. Uh, there's, there was an interesting window um, for, for my generation and my friends where the Presidio of San Francisco was a, a former um, military base and it was mm-hmm. deactivated and left unoccupied for about 12 years from probably about 1989 or 1990 around then um, through uh, early 2000. I'm I'm not sure exactly when the date was that um, redevelopment of that area came about, but it resulted in a, you know, about a decade where it was essentially just a big national park in the middle of the city. So um, I've talked about this quite a bit with some friends that I grew up with and we just had this amazing opportunity to have access to a world-class city and also just incredible recreation right there in the city. Um, Mm. So really unique time to grow up in San Francisco. And I think it's influenced um, certainly the way I look at the world and the way a lot of my friends do as well. For sure. Did you have an entrepreneurship mindset growing up, say lemonade stands or start any other products? (laughs) Yeah, I did. Um, You know, without really knowing it, I I did kind of all those things. Um, Yeah. One sort of funny one, um, in San Francisco, there was a big sinkhole in probably 1990 or so. Um, just, a, mm-hmm. a, you know, this neighborhood had a big sinkhole in it and actually swallowed a couple of houses. And oh, um, it, it became sort of a tourist attraction for people to come by and observe these houses falling into this sinkhole. You know, nobody, nobody was hurt or injured or anything because it was noticed early enough that, that the, the occupants of these houses could vacate. But my yeah. cousin and I, we were like, you know, five or six years old, and we made this little stand called Sinkhole Cigars. And it was literally just tape. It was, it was cotton balls rolled up in, in a paper with a bunch of talcum powder in them. And when you blow on them, you know, the, the fake smoke would come out. I mean, it's a ridiculous little thing, but we're yeah. like in first grade here, and we're trying to sell Sinkhole Cigars to, you know, for a dollar to, uh, to tourists. <laughs> and there were a couple people that were just really generous and bought uh, some of our cigars and probably threw them away right away. But without knowing it, yeah, I was always, I always had little hustles and little things to do. It, it wasn't necessarily because I was super passionate about starting a business. I just found it kind of fun to make something and sell it. For sure. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, in 2000, yeah. so in 2003, you went to the University of Colorado at Boulder. Yep. Uh, what did you study there? Uh, I studied environmental design in the environmental design college with an emphasis in architecture. And I also okay. had a minor in business. Were you involved with any athletics or clubs during your time? Yeah, um, there's a there's a really highly ranked NCAA um, Division One cycling team there, and I raced mm. on the downhill. And at the time, it was mountain cross team. Um, and I, I later went on to race professionally after college, um, kind of regional professional, you know, around the mountain states and and uh, nationally. Um, mm. Never made enough money to do that, or was good enough to do that professionally, like you know, as a source of income, primary source of income. But yeah. um, that was a big part of my life and, and sort of my whole social scene was kind of revolving around biking. Awesome. Did you go there on scholarship or, or no? No, no. I went there, um, you know, as, a, as an out-of-state student. 
Um, okay. And the, the reason why I selected uh, Colorado was both the presence of a strong design program and also a strong cycling team. So it was something I looked at from the beginning. Hmm. Awesome. So what was your overall experience like at that university then? Was it overall pretty good? Yeah, oh, it was amazing. I, uh, I, I joke with people that ask me about it. Um, I wouldn't trade a Harvard degree for my experience at Boulder. Um, mm. it, it was perfect for me at the time. Um, and it allowed me to be serious about my studies, but also, you know, recreate and spend a good amount of time outside um, because there's just so much to do right there. Uh, mm-hmm. It was just a really fun school, really inspiring school. Um, great weather in Boulder. It, nothing but good things to say about it. Awesome. So following uh, college and prior to Rumple, what kind of jobs were you working then at this time? So for probably three summers uh, while in college, I worked on a construction crew. Um, okay. And I, was, I, I started at the very, very bottom of that of that rung, um, largely doing the demolition part of the construction. So it was an independent contractor who would buy, um, you know, kind of dumpy houses in Denver, um, put a little bit of money into them and then flip them. And we would usually do three or four a summer. Um, Hmm. and you know, in the beginning there, I was, I was doing the dirtiest work, you know, moving the old appliances out. I remember one time where, uh, there was a beehive under the house in a crawl space. We went and Hmm. got me like a hazmat suit and this big, air canister of, of a bee repellent. And I crawled in there on my stomach and just shot this thing for five minutes until the canister ran out. So it was oh, like the, the dirtiest, worst work um, on the yeah. crew. But, you know, I graduated slowly um, up to being able to kind of like help build the decks and, you know, some more kind of light, uh, non-finished carpentry. And that was really helpful. It aligned well with my major of architecture because I saw, you know, we'd, we'd be breaking down walls and checking out all the framing and everything. So it was really cool in that sense. Um, and then, and then, uh, my senior year, I got, you know, an office job. Th- those couple of years before that had been outside obviously. And, um, you know, spending a lot of time using my hands, my senior year, I got a, a, an office job as an intern at a big architecture firm in Denver, um, okay. called Gensler and Gensler is, is one of the largest architecture firms in the world. And, uh, that was my first real exposure to like corporate big business architecture. Um, you know, I was wearing business casual, the office was totally quiet, you could hear a pin drop. I wasn't mm. a, a huge fan of it, to be honest. Um, yeah. I enjoyed the experience and, and some of the people I met were really cool, but my impact was just like nothing. I remember this whole summer, you know, I'm, I'm a senior about to graduate with a design degree and I designed a window louver um, for mm. the whole time I was there. Um, so it was like I designed this one little mechanical component that was going to go on a, you know, probably a 80 story building or something in Shanghai, um, just huge project. And it was cool to be able to, to have, you know, a, a touch on the overall project in that way. But in the grand scheme of things, that impact is just nothing. So yeah. I, I realized pretty quickly that, that, uh, architecture or at least architecture at that scale was not something I was totally interested in. So with this internship at this time, following college, did you continue working for that same firm or did you venture off somewhere else? No, I, uh, I, I ended up getting a job um, right before I graduated. I was kind of I kind of overlapped with my final semester and this job, which was part time uh, with a great design agency in Boulder called Communication Arts. Um, mm-hmm. And and Communication Arts was uh, it, it was really multidisciplinary. So they did everything from, um, you know, architectural conceptual rendering to packaging design to uh, identity and branding. 
Um, and I was specifically working mostly on uh, the conceptual architecture side. So what we would do is we would we would work with uh, development groups uh, that were doing big, you know, large scale retail projects. And uh, we would work with them to illustrate a mature project for um, for the public, for marketing purposes, uh, and for some of the uh, brokers of the space to go solicit tenants. So if you see a big, you know, lifestyle center or, or you know, high end shopping mall or something that's going in in your community, you often see on the chain link fence outside of the project, this like sort of beautiful wispy rendering, like watercolor drawing, for instance, of what that project will look like when it's mature. So it's got mm -hmm. mature trees and, you know, shoppers walking around carrying bags, smiling. We would create those assets. Um, okay. And what those were used for is both, you know, getting buy-in from the community that was that was getting this new lifestyle center and also selling in to, you know, big retailers to occupy the space in advance of the building being constructed. So, you know, let's say, um, I don't know, just let's say Gap or something wanted to occupy, mm -hmm. you know, 70,000 square feet or something in, in this new lifestyle center. Those renderings that we created would help sell that project to Gap so that they would say, okay, okay. We, you know, we like the look of this. We think this is a... A good uh, a good space for us to be in, and we'll sign up here. Just one of the one of the things that that would be shown to Gap or or a similar tenant to to sign into the project, sign on to the project. Gotcha. So Rumple comes about in around 2013. So what inspired you to go this direction, and more specifically, enter the blanket industry? Well, um, there's a little bit of time that would elapse between this this most recent job I was just talking about and what yeah. led me to the job I was holding right before Rumpel. So I was working okay. for Communication Arts around 2007. That's that's about when I graduated. I was there for two and a half years or so. And then the, the company contracted considerably um, during the recession in 2008. Um, I was laid off and did a bunch of odd jobs for you know a year or two. And then I moved back to the Bay Area, which, um, which I'm from, and mm -hmm. started working for a, another branding agency there called Landor. Um, and Landor, uh, like Gensler, is a really large kind of nationally or sorry, internationally known um, design agency uh, specializing in all sorts of, um, of uh, design touch points from identity to signage to strategy, writing, naming, all, all that stuff. So that's really where I got my exposure to branding and kind of like storytelling and narrative design. Um, and that really, I think, is the skill set that's carried over the most into Rumple um, and where I add value to the company in Rumple. Um, so fast forward a little bit to 2013. Um, I actually fast forward to 2012. I'm on a ski trip with a with a good friend of mine. Um, we are skiing uh, just outside Mammoth. We're, we're sleeping in the car and ready to get up the next day and go skiing. Um, and our car completely froze that night. And we woke up the next morning and couldn't turn the car on. We pretty much had to just wait around for somebody to show up to to get us out of the spot we were staying in and uh, bundled up in our sleeping bags and um, just waited. And, and during that time we waited, we both acknowledged that we really weren't that uncomfortable. Um, you know, we were in this rather sketchy situation. What, you know, would be a pretty uncomfortable and freezing situation was not bad because of these sleeping bags. And we started talking yeah. about the materials and how we liked the materials a lot better than our comforters back home. So we decided to make this sleeping bag blanket. Um, and when we eventually got out of there, we got back to San Francisco, we made these things, sewed them up ourselves. And, um, that was sort of the end of, of it for a while and, uh, not much happened for about a year. Then, mm -hmm. um, you know, come the end of 2013, 
a bunch of our friends had had said that this is a really cool product. They liked the idea. They'd be interested in something like this. And we said, well, let's just try launching this thing on Kickstarter. So my friend and I created a Kickstarter campaign and uh, launched what became Rumble um, and ended up raising about a quarter million dollars in 30 days. And the, the back to your original question of how Rumble came about, it's, it's sort of the, um, it, it's the pairing of my background in outdoor and my love for outdoor recreation with, uh, with my background in design. And my partner okay. was uh, an industrial designer, um, mm -hmm. an engineer. And so he largely was in charge of a lot of the sourcing and communication with the factory at the time. And I was really in charge of, you know, the brand and how things looked and felt and, and the eventual story that kind of became the Rumble story. Gotcha. So what did that first prototype look like when you and your partner went back home and started creating this blanket? Uh, it's bright orange. It was just kind of some off the shelf, uh, fabric we found. It's a nylon fabric, ripstop fabric. Um, this was the first and really kind of still is one of the only things I've ever sewn with a sewing machine. So it's not square at all. The finishing of it is horrible. Um, we experiment, we, we built two prototypes first. Um, the first was one where we, uh, essentially created the shell, the sleeve, if you will, of the, of the blanket without keeping one edge sewn down. Then we tacked the insulation to that, um, to that shell and then flipped the thing inside out and then finished off that, that open edge. The second one um, was one where we actually moved a stitch line in from the edge, probably five or six inches and tacked down the, uh, tacked down the insulation with a sew through that happened on the inside of the boundary of the, of the blanket. And we ultimately didn't like as, you know, how that one looked as much. So we decided to tack down the insulation on the edges. That's still how our blankets are constructed. Of course, they now have, you know, stitch lines going through them that create sort of interesting design. But um, that really like kind of the first one that we did, although it was not square and the finishing was horrible and the material has changed quite a bit. That's essentially the construction that we're using today. Gotcha. So you mentioned Kickstarter. Were you selling blankets by this time or was this following the prototype that you just mentioned? So we went from, from prototypes, you know, hand-sewn by Wiley and Nick, uh, who, was, mm -hmm. who was my co-founder, um, to I think we had one or two samples from a factory. And those were what we used to create our Kickstarter video. Okay. And then, and, and then from there, it was yeah, like yeah. we sold, you know, 18 or 1900 or 2000 or something. I don't remember what it was, but it was like we had one prototype that we used for the video and then we were okay. off to production. So what did that Kickstarter campaign look like? So I know a lot of people do it. They can just do it for specifically funding with no reward. Were customers coming on there and buying blankets to, and that's how you were funding or what did the campaign specifically look like? Yeah, it, it was, uh, they were buying, they were shopping products. You know, we had four yeah. colors we were offering, which of course were just images that I had Photoshopped. Uh, we didn't actually have four color prototypes and then we were offering it in at the time it was four sizes so we okay. had a throw size a twin size a queen size and a king size we've later uh contracted down quite a bit so we had four sizes and we've we've now moved to one person and two person size we find that mm -hmm. that better aligns with consumers expectations with like tent sizing and just you know being a little more familiar with those that type of language for what size they should buy. Um, yeah. We also have a junior size, which is which is sort of out of that mix, but and that's kind of like a kid's blanket. 
Um, but yeah, so, so we were selling four different sizes in, I believe it was four different colors. Um, we were figuring out all the, all the things that were driving purchase intent at that time. So we did one where it was like, you could get a blue blanket with a red, uh, accent and you could get a blue blanket with a white accent. Ultimately mm -hmm. found out that the accent wasn't a real driver for people. So they care more about the, you know, larger blue, blue color of the whole thing. Um, so yeah. we don't do that anymore. Now it's like, if you have a, if you want to get a red one, it's, it only comes with one accent type. If you want to get a blue one, it comes with one blue accent type. Okay. And if you don't mind, how much funding was acquired on that first Kickstarter campaign? Yeah. So, so the total, uh, amount raised, I believe before add-ons, which I can get mm -hmm. to in a second was I think 237,000, okay. um, over, over about, I think we were live for 30 days or 35 days. Um, you can also add on some uh, rewards after the fact. Uh, we use a service called Backerkit. And mm -hmm. basically when somebody's checking out, you know, they're entering all their shipping information after the campaign is closed, they can then add on more rewards. They can buy more blankets. They can add t-shirts and hats and stickers and things like that. So when all that was said and done, I think the total came out to just shy of 250000 Okay. Um, and then, and then you know, we were not super efficient then with, with our money. So... I think in total, we netted about $50,000 of, of uh, net income at the mm. end of that. So we spent a whole lot shipping product around and getting product to our warehouse, um, you know, setting up a warehouse, paying sort of a premium to, to get something set up in short order. Uh, we also at the time had the campaign open globally. So we were shipping like, you oh, know, wow. some units we were shipping to, to really obscure addresses and <laughs> just paying an arm and a leg for shipping, which, which we you know, did not pass on to the customer at the time we, we covered shipping. So, okay. um, that, that ate into a lot of our profit. Mm. So once established, how did you begin to market at this time along with what was the main demographic that you were focusing on? Uh, it, you know, well, I'll start with the sort of the second question, which is the demographic and it okay. really was not very sophisticated. I mean, we didn't, we did some, some surveying after the campaign where we got, you know, age, gender, uh, sociographic kind of breakdowns. And, and what we found largely was that the people buying our products were pretty similar to me and my co-founder. You know, it was people that generally live in urban environments, like recreating outside, um, you know, have kind of above average disposable income. Um, we had pretty much dead, dead down the middle, male, female split, uh, which was great. There was a lot of opportunity there that we identified. And so w what I'm getting at is what we came to was uh, we're, we're just going to build products that we would like to have. We're going to build style that we would like to have colors that we'd like to have functionality that we'd like to have and hope that, that our consumers align with that. And that those are yeah. essentially the people that we're selling to is, is people like us. Um, and, and that's actually a recommendation I would give to anybody starting a company later on when your company gets more mature and you have more resources to do significant surveying and, and profiling and everything. Um, you can, you can sharpen that point, but in the beginning, it's going to be the most authentic and the most uh, easy for you to build a company that targets a customer that's like you. Um, for sure. So that's kind of how we started and that's what we focused on for, for quite a while, actually, first couple of years. So, yeah. So what marketing avenues did you guys decide to use, such as like social media and other aspects? Because that dollar amount for that Kickstarter campaign is pretty impressive. So how did you reach those customers? Yeah, we, we still didn't do a huge amount of paid advertising at that time. So we were doing, okay. you know, Facebook and Instagram, but it wasn't like a whole lot of promotion, promoted posts and things like that. 
mostly that $50,000 went back into the next production run. So we used, okay. we used the money we made obviously to create the products that our backers purchased um, and fulfill those. And then the remaining 50,000 went right back into more production. We didn't pay ourselves uh, for about two years. Um, so okay. any money generated went back into production. We did some minimal things here and there. Like we, we, we uh, hired a PR agency pretty, pretty shortly after the campaign. Um, which was, you know, relatively cheap at the time. It was like two or three thousand dollars a month. That was really helpful, actually, because they got us a couple of key media placements. You know, we got into to uh, Gear Junkie and Outside Magazine and, and some outdoor publications like this, which really helped raise awareness. But it was really organic. I mean, we we spent a lot of time just hustling and being everywhere. You know, and and by everywhere I mean um, in person. And, and fortunately in San Francisco, which is where we were at the time, there's just a lot of events and places you can be, you know, we For sure. did some vending at, at street fairs and like outside lands music festival. We showed up at a lot of uh, events and, and just gatherings where people could see the product and meet us and hear about what we were doing. And it was just like a lot of organic word of mouth um, in mm. those early years. And it wasn't a super, uh, you know, well thought out strategic marketing funnel or anything that we had created. Gotcha. So I was looking at the website, and I'm not sure what time you entered this area, but you guys also offer dog beds, towels, and other non-blanket products. What made you explore this area? So, I mean, for starters, 90% of our revenue comes from blankets, largely. Um, you know, we have a number of different types of blankets, but if you if you group all of them together as blankets or not blankets, which is kind of how we uh, how we. Uh, have our taxonomy on the site. If you look at the yeah. top navigation menu, ninety uh, percent of the revenue is generated from blankets. Um, mm -hmm. Those other things, you know, towels specifically, that's sort of a seasonality bridging tactic. So we yeah. we sell a lot more in Q4 and in colder months, and um, in June, July, and August, and hot times of the year, we can talk about towels. Um, it's a sort of natural extension for us to to create something like that. It, uh, it's just another thing to talk about during those months when people aren't necessarily thinking about blankets. And then with the dog bed, um, there, was, there was two reasons for that. The first was we just constantly get photos that people send us of, of their dogs or pets using rumples. You know, the product works really well for that. Um, it mm. sheds pet hair really well. Um, you know, it's pretty indestructible. So, so people aren't worried about a dog messing it up or anything. Um, yeah. And then additionally, we had developed a relationship uh, with Kelly Lund, who's the owner of like a really famous dog, Loki, wolf dog, uh, who has a huge Instagram following. I didn't know it's, it's kind of funny, but he's got like 2 million Instagram followers. And, and we <laughs> developed this relationship with Kelly um, just through, you know, meeting him at outdoor retailer and various industry things. Um, mm. And we thought, all right, well, you know, we clearly have a consumer base that is dog owners. Um, a lot of people send us imagery of dogs. Uh, we've got this you know, personal relationship with somebody who has access to like a big dog influencer. Um, yeah. Maybe we can sort of pair those things and make a custom dog product um, that, that, you know, speaks to that dog owner and also is endorsed by a famous dog. Um, That's awesome. And, and supported by a famous dog. So rather than make a dog blanket, we thought, all right, well, let's actually try to enter this space with an interesting, unique product. And for us, after, after um, quite a bit of analysis, we determined that, we hadn't seen a really just bomber uh, portable dog bed. You know, there's a lot of great dog beds out there that, you know, Yeti makes one that's, that's like 400 bucks. There's a, there's a lot out there. Filson makes a really yeah. cool one. 
Um, but they're all, you know, they're foam and they're not super portable, right? Like they, they mm -hmm. weigh a few pounds and you wouldn't be able to collapse that thing down. If you traveled or took a big road trip, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to bring that. So we thought, all right, well, let's create, you know, kind of the outdoor rugged dog bed that's actually portable. And what that resulted in was um, essentially a, a reversible sleeve uh, with an air pad inside it. So mm. the sleeve can be, um, can be put on with uh, nylon on, or excuse me, polyester on the outside, uh, recycled polyester on the outside for kind of like a more outdoor, uh, you know, moisture wicking um, feel and look. And then you can reverse that and there's a Sherpa fleece on the other side for like a cozier, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're more indoor and you're not necessarily trying to shed away uh, debris and pine needles and things like that. And then the air mattress is pretty much the same air mattress you'd find in a camping set. Um, so it's a, it's a bonded sidewall with a self-inflating valve and uh, it works really well. And, and we um, have had a lot of positive feedback. We just launched that product on Kickstarter. Uh, let's see, it was last fall. So fall 2019 and we just okay. shipped it to backers like two months ago. Um, okay. so it's been, in, it's been in the wild now for about two months and we've just had great feedback on it so far. I, That's you know, awesome. what I mentioned before, it's not a huge part of our business at all, but it yeah. is, um, it is a really good solution for the customer that's looking for that type of a product for a travel situation that might have a big, you know, sort of rugged outdoorsy dog. For sure. So if a customer bought one of those, could they expect that to feel the same as a rumple blanket? Is it the same? external material then? Yeah, it's the exact same material. In in majority okay. of our, our products, our two our two kind of most popular franchises are the original Puffy Blanket and the Nanoloft Puffy Blanket. And they both use a 30D post-consumer recycled polyester shell. Um, okay. They have different fills, which is what distinguishes them uh, from each other. But that's the same material that we use on the dog bed. And then the inner is a, uh, is a really nice Sherpa fleece that we developed, which is also uh, post-consumer recycled. Gotcha. So looking at Rumpel today, what would you say separates your blankets from competitors? Uh, well, I think first and foremost, Rumpel is kind of the original version of this. Um, there mm -hmm. are other kind of like outdoor technical blankets that, that other larger companies have made, like I know North Face made one. Um, and, and what I've heard at least is those products were largely made for um, sort of like the tip of the spear pinnacle athletes that these companies sponsor. So if you know someone was going and climbing K2 or something like that and didn't want to remove their boots at night, North Face or, or a similar company might create a blanket for them that they could use instead of a sleeping bag, um, mm -hmm. a quilt instead of a sleeping bag. And so the product was never like marketed in a major way to the everyday consumer. And mm -hmm. Rumpel definitely you know, looks at the category from a kind of outdoor recreation lens, but also just every day. Um, yeah. you know, we, we find that customers are mostly using the products, you know, on their patio, on their deck, kind of car camping, like really not super hardcore activities. Um, and, and it's just the positioning of the brand and the product. That's a little bit, um, it's a little less hardcore than some of these other companies that have made a similar product in the past. So that's the first one is we're kind of the original coming to the, to the category with this outlook on it. Um, the next, I would say Rumple, uh, you know, I mean, this is obviously a subjective thought here, but I think that we have the most <laughs> credibility in the category and we're able to, to get the coolest artists, the coolest brands to work with us. You know, a lot of the competitors that I've seen pop up in recent years that kind of just rip off our designs and our aesthetic. Um, and we really kind of originated that. And, and 
you know, for that reason, the best people want to work with us. So we get the best collaborations, we get the best artists. And um, I think that's another thing that consumers really care about is having mm. great partnerships like that and kind of purchasing from the originator of the category. For sure. So I want to touch on actually your Shark Tank experience. And to the listeners out there, uh, Wiley, I don't know when you were on it specifically, but they were just aired on Shark Tank. And yeah, overall, what was that experience like for you as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, it, it was intense, you know, for a yeah. variety of reasons. I mean, I've, I've both done a decent amount of, um, you know, on-camera stuff, although much more kind of small time, like local news and, and things like that, decent amount of time in front of the camera. Um, sure. So from that perspective, it was way more intense. I mean, you know, <laughs> hot studio lights shining on you, big cameras, big production. That was a, a really big deal, you know, hair makeup department and everything. Um, that was intense. And then additionally, you know, I've, I've raised money for the company before and I've had plenty of pitches and plenty of experience pitching the, the business and hashing it out with investors for why I think the company is worth what I say it is. And it was way more intense in that regard as well. Um, just, just lightning fast conversation and questioning. Um, and you know, they edited it down to about eight or 10 minutes, but I was in there for 90 minutes talking to wow. this guy. So it's, it was full on super intense the whole time. Um, you know, Shark Tank and NBC is an organization I've been talking to for years, actually. Um, they, they started talking to Rumble, I think back when they were in like season eight or something like that. They're now in season 12. Um, mm -hmm. and at the time I'd always thought, you know, I just don't know if this is the right thing for Rumble to do. Um, most of the products I had seen on there were like kind of one-off really protectable products where they had some serious IP or protection around the product that created a mode around them that, that, you know, nobody could come and duplicate that. Rumble really doesn't have that. I mean, we have some protection. We've got a couple trademarks um, on some key things, you know, our, our stitch lines, our name, our logo, um, some of the technology we've developed, et cetera. But for the most part, people can replicate and people have replicated the product that we're making. Um, yeah. And so I, I thought I was going to get chewed out by, for that reason. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, this year uh, they approached me and they said, um, you know, Shark Tank is gaining more notoriety as a, as a um, platform that really helps launch businesses. And we are soliciting more businesses this, this season that are uh, a little more mature and at a, at a bigger scale, you know, maybe profitable businesses to further bolster the legitimacy of Shark Tank as a platform for real businesses. So it's not yeah. just like little mom and pop, you know, lemonade stands. There's obviously plenty of that mixed in there, but Specifically on season 12, there's a number of companies that have been in business for several years. They're profitable. They've reached some degree of scale. So I thought, yeah. all right, you know, this is, this is an intention of NBC to make, or excuse me, ABC. Sorry if I said NBC before. Um, <laughs> ABC um, to, make, uh, to make the show a little bit more legitimate from that perspective. And I, I think that it's a good opportunity for Rumpel to gain some exposure to a national audience. And also, uh, like the whole reason why I went on there, um, in addition to it being a cool experience to have as a business owner, is uh, we do actually want to get into sports licensing. And that's that's yeah. what I went in there pitching. You know, we've got a good business in the outdoor and kind of adjacent lifestyle categories. And we've got a profitable business there and, and we're growing there. But there's a big opportunity that we see in sports licensing. And it's a super nuanced, really uh, complicated channel to navigate. A lot of politics, a lot of people touching 
the product and the licenses and the royalties and all that stuff. And my thought was, you know, partnering with somebody like Cuban, for instance, could fast track that process and just get yeah. that straight, you know, access to the leagues. And we could, we could do our negotiations directly there rather than go through a bunch of intermediaries. So the intent was, was twofold. It was certainly to, to have a great experience as, a, as an entrepreneur and get some mm -hmm. great media exposure, but also because I thought that there was a real opportunity to partner with one of these sharks and fast track our way into sports licensing. For sure. So I've had some other guests that have been on Shark Tank as well. And I don't know if you realize at the scale you guys are at, but did you notice once it aired the spike in sales or, or yeah, what did that look like? Yeah, we did. And, and, you know, candidly, like I talked to a bunch of companies that had been on Shark Tank also, you know, after we did our taping and everything and, and mm -hmm. the ranges of what people experienced after really varied. You know, some people it was like, okay, we did 2x a normal day on our air night. And some people were like, we did 30x a normal, normal day. And I think that really has to do with the amount of awareness that the company has built up in advance of being shown. Um, yeah. You know, if you, if you already have a pretty solid and sophisticated digital marketing strategy and you're already prospecting consumers and bringing them into your site and everything, you might not necessarily see that much of a spike. Whereas if you're, you know, like a single cell organism company and you have no awareness whatsoever and all of a sudden 5 million people see your brand, you might, your site might crash. Like it might be just this huge influx of traffic that you're totally not used to. We saw yeah. probably a three and a half to four X revenue spike, okay. um, you know, day of airing, day after. And it's gradually kind of tailed off, but it's been, it's been a, a smaller, you know, initial pop than we were expecting with a longer tail, which we'd prefer, frankly. Um, you know, yeah. I'd rather not just get a big spike of, of customers coming in and then not develop any kind of relationship with them. But what we are seeing is that that tail actually is lasting a little bit longer and people are coming in, checking out the brand, considering it, and then maybe coming back a couple of days later to actually make a purchase. Awesome. So if you would uh, share one piece of advice that you would have for an aspiring entrepreneur, maybe something you've learned or regret, just anything. Yeah, um, I, I would I would say this advice is for not necessarily an, an aspiring entrepreneur, but an actual entrepreneur that's that's in it, mm -hmm. that's already started a company and is kind of battling through those first couple of years of, of uh, starting a company and all the challenges that come with it. I would say one thing I regret doing a little bit in the early days is just not being present um, yep. with, you know, sort of like where I was on my journey. Um, it always felt like I was pushing towards the next thing and kind of like living a little bit frantically and, and uh, you know, not really enjoying my time in those early phases. I mean, when I look back on some of the activities that I did in the early days, um, you know, I mentioned it earlier, but like going and vending at a street fair or something, mm. um, I mean, that was fun. You know, we were hanging out meeting people, drinking beers, like, you know, just having a good time and it was relaxing and mellow and it wasn't yeah. totally critical that it went off without a hitch. When I look back on it at the time, mm -hmm. it felt so important to me and I treated it that way, which, you know, probably is one of the reasons why Rumpel has been fairly successful to date is, is, you know, just the importance I've given to every step of the journey. But in hindsight, I think it would have been fun to, you know, maybe take a step back, take a breather and realize that this is, this is a pretty uh, cool situation you found yourself in and, and uh, just enjoy this moment because it only gets more intense and more critical and, and uh, you know, the stakes are higher as you scale. So um, enjoying the kind of present moment you're in is, it sounds a little cheesy, but it is, <laughs> at least for me, has been very true. Um, and hopefully, you know, I, I look back on 
where we're at now in a couple of years and say, oh man, that was so mellow back then. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I've been able now, at least in my, in my, uh, my journey as an entrepreneur to be able to take a step back and enjoy the current phase that I'm in. Mm. Well, Wiley, thank you so much for joining me. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Rumpel at rumpel.com. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.